0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is Heather Lutke, and I'm a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute, or ELI. ELI has partnered with Sidley Austin LLP to launch the second season of the podcast series entitled The Enforcement Angle. Through this series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. Today's host is Nicole Noel East. Nicole is a managing associate in the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. On today's episode, Nicole speaks with Matt Tejada and Tai Lung of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agencies Office of Environmental Justice, about the newly updated mapping tool known as EJScreen 2.0. Mr. Tejada joined EPA in 2013 as a career senior executive and director of the Office of Environmental Justice. As director, Mr. Tejada leads the Environmental Justice Program's cross-cutting work throughout the EPA and across activities with other federal agencies, states, tribes, local governments, and other stakeholders. Before joining EPA, Mr. Tejada spent over five years as Executive Director of the Environmental Justice Advocacy Air Alliance Houston in the Houston and Texas Gulf Coast area. Mr. Lung has worked on mapping, partnerships, and policy in EPA's Office of Environmental Justice since 2012. His work focuses on the development of policies and tools that address low-income and minority populations affected by pollution. Mr. Lung leads EPA's effort on EJ Screen a mapping and screening tool that combines environmental and demographic data to highlight areas with potential environmental justice concerns. He worked on environmental justice and Superfund issues in EPA's Office of Land and Emergency Management from 2008 to 2012.
2: Thank you so much, Matt and Ty, for joining us today. I've taken a look at the tool and just congratulations on all the work that you've done to get to the stage with all the new updates. And thank you for your time today for joining us. Absolutely. We're glad to be here. So we have a couple questions about the new EJScreen 2.0, the update to the prior EJ Screen tool that was rolled out in 2015. The first thing that I wanted to ask at a very high level is what are the major differences between EJScreen 1.0, as I call it, the prior EJScreen model and the updated EJScreen 2.0? Ty, I'll ask you to answer first.
3: Really, the big change for EJScreen 2.0 was the interface change. Prior to this year, we had wanted to make some changes to the interface, but we've always been running EJ Screen on such a shoestring budget that we never really had the funding to do some bigger changes. And as a result, the tool was 10 years old. We put it out internally in the agency in 2012. And so it looked a little bit like a tool that was 10 years old. On top of that, some of the functionality was a little bit buried. The maps, you had to click a few different clicks to get to some of the maps. That is really some of the key function of the tool, and we wanted that to be right up at the front. We had some of these really advanced features that were kind of right alongside the maps that were some functionality that some of our really advanced users use, but a lot of folks never really touch some of those functions, things like the ability to import shape files. And so we wanted to put those in more of a toolbar. So we really tried to center the tool on some of those majorly used functions. On top of that, we did do some other substantial things, and that's the addition of some new layers. There were a bunch of data sets that we couldn't get at the available resolution that we wanted to prior to last year. So we pulled in some new data on health for the first time. That's something that people had been asking for for a long time. We pulled in some critical map services or critical services for communities. And then we also pulled in some new climate data. So I thought those were some of the really big changes that made DJ Screen 2.0 different.
2: Matt, is there anything else you would like to add?
3: One of the things that it's important for folks to
0: understand is ever since we released the tool, the top request we received year over year was health data. Probably the second top request we received was climate change data. But one of the things about EJ Screen that is really tough on our end of having to actually manage the tool is we have two very competing priorities in EJ screen. One, we need data that is consistent across all of the United States, including territories, outlying areas, the Caribbean, and even the data we have. Some of it starts to feather out once you leave the contiguous 48 states. But we need nationally consistent data, but we need it to operate at a really fine geographic scale. Most of EJScreen operates at the block group level, and there just are not many data sets in the United States that answer those two requests. So people will see really exciting data about different things affecting communities with EJ or different health outcomes or things with climate. But those things most of the time are not anecdotal, but they're not covering the entire United States at a fine geographic scale. So when CDC released some new health data a little over a year ago, We knew immediately that was gonna be our best chance to finally get some health data into EJScreen. And as climate data continues to get better and better with greater coverage across the entire United States, we are constantly out there scrubbing and looking for, when we get a request in from a user inside or outside of EPA, we almost always write immediately back and ask, do you have access to data that does that? We'd love that. We totally agree with what you wanna do here. Do you know where we can find the data that will allow us to do that?
2: Right, and Matt, you talked about the block level for the common person listening, what's the scope of a block level?
0: To be clear, EJ Screen operates at the block group level. So the finest scale of geographic resolution that the census uses is the actual block level. And that is literally like a block. You know, walk around the block. That is the scale that census operates at. We cannot access and use that data publicly because once you get down to that level of spatial resolution, you can start to guess what's going on with your neighbors, right? You can start to get at personal information. So the finest geographic scale that census provides publicly is the block group, which is essentially three or four or five blocks together. It's typically around a couple thousand people and that varies. There are some block groups that have fewer than 2,000. There are some that get way above for whatever reason, like a military base or a university. But typically, EJ Screen is at that block group level, and that is a level of spatial resolution that very, very few mapping and screening tools of any stripe operate at. EJ Screen is really operating at a very fine level of granularity.
2: This is really helpful. Thank you for these high-level aspects of the EJ Screen 2.0. My next question is, how does EPA as an agency plan to implement the use of EJScreen 2.0 across agency functions, programmatic, enforcement, et cetera? Can you talk a bit about that, Matt and Ty?
0: One of the things that we're really looking forward to in this administration is that for the first time, we have been able to draft an entire section within the heart of our multi-year strategic plan at EPA. And that's a really boring, unsexy thing to talk about, (laughs) but for us bureaucrats, the fact that we have been able to draft an entire chapter in our strategic plan is monumental because that multi-year strategic plan, that is what the entire agency looks at in terms of determining year over year, what do the 15, 16,000 people at EPA have to focus on? It determines what sort of requests we make in the president's budget up to the Hill. It determines what sort of deliverables people commit to do in their annual performance appraisals that then determine if they get raises or bonuses or promotions. So for the first time, we've been able to put in this multi-year strategic plan commitments around things such as each program is going to develop a policy related to their program's use of EJ screen. And even in that, that's a really important thing to point out. EJ Screen isn't an easy button answer tool for EJ. It is a very broad, very flexible, very transparent tool that allows the user a lot of power to access a ton of data in a very tangible way to start to understand equity and justice issues on the ground. And the way that our Superfund program potentially uses it is very different from how our enforcement program uses it. It's very different from how our emergency response program uses it. So for the first time ever, we've made the commitment that every program across EPA is gonna write down on paper, here's how this program is gonna use the tool. That's really gonna help develop at EPA just a deeper and deeper level and a more consistent level of use of the tool across all of our programs And what that means is that we're going to have a much more fundamental, consistent starting point that everyone across EPA is potentially going to have. They're going to have to go to EJ Screen with whatever they do. They're going to have to think about EJ in everything they do. And EJ Screen provides them a really meaningful, data-rich starting point for whatever sort of EJ process or investigation or research or engagement that they need to pursue for
2: their job. And just to clarify, the tool that we have as outside agency users is the same tool, the exact same tool that the agency uses internally.
0: 100%. We have always, ever since we released the tool, and it's something that I think we're all really proud of, we have always committed to EJScreen being 100% transparent, 100% downloadable, the algorithm, the math, the whole tool. You can recreate the entire tool on a private server or on, on a university server. We're really proud of that. There are some things that we do, kind of like when we first created EJ Screen, we kept it inside for a couple of years just to play with it, to understand what is this thing, how are we going to use it, how do we message it when we put it outside. Every once in a while, we will have like a developmental piece that we keep inside for a few months or something, just to toy around with. But once anything actually becomes of use in EJ Screen, we put it in the public tool and we make it completely transparent.
2: And Ty, you touched a bit on the new additions to the tool. EJ Screen 2.0 now contains climate change data, health disparity information, critical service gap information. How will these new layers affect the EJ indices? I'm very familiar with the communities of color and the low income factors. How do these new layers really fit into the big picture and how will they be used?
3: I think that those new layers, Nicole, are really gonna help us have a better understanding of what's going on in these communities. But for now, they're not going to really impact the EJ indexes or indices. So we basically create those EJ indices through looking at an average of people of color in that community and the low-income folks in that community. And we're combining that together with some environmental data. At some point in the future, there's a good chance that we could start taking some of that climate data and perhaps we could create an EJ index around that climate data, or perhaps we could create an EJ index around that health data. We've been talking about it. We still have some figuring out to do. That's one of those things we'll probably toy with a little bit inside of the agency before we put it out in the public. We've got to make sure whatever we do, we're doing it the best way. We'll probably talk to some academics on it make sure that our work is peer reviewed and defensible. It takes a little bit of time to figure that out. But for now, we just built those layers in there as some additional information that you can layer on to see what's going on in the communities.
2: Very helpful, thank you. And then I saw the new EJ indicator, the underground storage tanks. Can you talk a bit about the rationale to add the USTs to the tool?
3: The addition of that underground storage tanks layer was actually a pretty big deal. With a lot of our data sets that we're looking at related to land, we're just looking at the proximity. So we're looking at the proximity to Superfund sites. We're looking at proximity to hazardous waste facilities, but it's really hard to get the pollution levels coming out from each of those facilities. We don't have national level maps of anything like that, but we do, which is something new. We had some of our folks in the Office of Research and Development and the Office of Land and Emergency Management They came together and they developed this data set on where there are leaking underground storage tanks and underground storage tanks across the entire country. So when they built that data set, we said, obviously that's something we want to include in EJ's screen. We're getting at where there are actually leaking underground storage tanks in a community. And we built that layer by actually looking at those leaking underground storage tanks and weighting them because obviously if that storage tank is leaking, is a lot bigger deal than if you just happen to have a storage tank in that area. The other really neat thing that those folks that developed that tool did, they also mapped out for the first time ever where we have public wells across the entire country. So now we have this well layer that we're probably gonna build into EJ Screen as well. We didn't get it in for this updated tool, but we've always got probably five, ten. 15 things in our back pocket that we're trying to figure out how we can get into the tool. So we're constantly working on some of these new layers. That's gonna be an exciting addition just because water and drinking water is one of those things that we would really like to have some better data in the tool around. So when we can get that well layer in there, I think that's gonna be a great addition. And all of that data that we're using regarding underground storage tanks is all available publicly in the US Finder tool, which can be found online.
2: So it sounds as if there are EPA programs that are creating these data sets, and then Matt, your EJ team is looking at which of those data sets would make sense to include in the EJScreen 2.0 tool.
0: One of the things we're focused on right now is with the increased use and visibility of EJScreen, as well as other screening tools that are out there, national tools, state-based tools, tools that nonprofits are working on, it's really highlighting the fact for a lot of our program colleagues that we have some real gaps in data coverage for some critical EJ issues. I think probably chief among them is water quality, drinking water quality, surface water quality. Those are huge EJ issues and we just don't have good nationally consistent data for them. So this visibility and this focus on EJ, particularly right now is really energizing across EPA and other places, states again, nonprofits, academic institutions. It's really energizing folks to identify these issues and put the investment forward to start to solve them because they realize now just how powerful and how necessary it is to have those levels of data, not just to understand what's happening with environmental justice, but to start to take action on it, to start to actually make better decisions in our rules, to make better decisions in terms of where our resources flow, to make better decisions about where we show up with support or compliance assistance or enforcement activity.
2: And one thing from the March 9th training, which was really helpful, so kudos to you both and Matt Lee for working on that. One thing you mentioned was how air-heavy some of the environmental data is currently, or was, in EJ Screen 1.0. So it sounds as if some of the gaps with water are being addressed. So the next question I had is, you talked about using the ACS data in the training tie and my question is, when do you expect to include the 2020 census data in the EJ Screen 2.0 tool?
3: We'll be including that in the next update of the tool, Nicole. So there's actually two different data sets when you talk about the 2020 census. The 2020 decennial census data has been released, but then there's also the 2020 ACS data that was released and... As soon as that gets released, we start our process of updating the tool just to make sure that we keep that ACS data as as up to date as possible. With that new release of the ACS data, we're going to start that update process. Normally, that ACS data gets released, I think, every year in December. This year, due to the pandemic, it was delayed a bit, and so that's why they're putting it out now.
2: then for the common person who isn't a geospatial mapping expert (laughs) and data expert, how do you distinguish between the ACS data and the other census data? What's the differences between those data sets?
3: The decennial census is probably the best census in that it has the largest sample size, but it only happens every 10 years. We're using the ACS data, which is the American Community Survey. It's a rolling census that happens every year, but then they average five years of that data. So we're using currently the 2015 to 2019 ACS data. And we use that ACS data because demographics change so quickly. So if we were using the decennial census by the time it came to 2029, that data is very dated and a neighborhood could look completely different from 2020 to 2029. And so we use that ACS, that American Community Survey, to have the most up-to-date data possible in the tool with regard to that demographic.
2: Thank you. Demogra- they really change a lot, especially in Washington, D.C. A community can look very different in a matter of years, <laughs>
3: depending mm-hmm. on what part
2: of the city you're in. Yes, it can. <laughs> That's a good point. So one question I've had, and I've listened in on some of the WeJAC meetings last year, and there was some talk about self-identification, where communities can self-identify as EJ communities. Matt, is that something that's currently available in the tool? Or do you plan to build into the tool the opportunity for a community to say, hey, for these reasons we believe we're an EJ community, can we also be included in the tool as such? Just
0: to be clear, EJScreen does not identify EJ communities. And that's a common misperception that a lot of people have when they start using the tool. EJScreen does not draw borders around people's communities and label them one way or the other. It presents a lot of data relevant to environmental justice issues at a very fine spatial resolution so that people can do their own analysis and can start to use that data very quickly to inform what is potentially happening on the ground. And we're very careful. Ever since we've launched EJScreen, we've been very careful to consistently message that everything you're seeing in EJScreen is a potential We use a lot of proxies for things that we don't know, like lead paint, right? We don't know where lead paint exists in people's houses. We don't do an annual survey of lead in people's houses. So we're looking at the age of housing stock, because if you have a 1960s or older home, you probably have lead paint in there somewhere, right? So we use a lot of proxies, but we don't actually know what's happening on the ground. That's why it's called EJ screen. It is a screen. It's just giving you a lot of information so that you can start to really understand much more clearly what questions do you need to ask? Who do you need to engage? What sort of resources do you need to start to pull up? What sort of languages do you need to have at your disposal if you're going to engage with certain communities? It is a tool that allows you to do a lot of analysis and screening and scoping and even evaluation and assessment after an activity to understand kind of where it might have landed on the ground. But it is not giving you definitive answers in terms of what the reality on the ground is or whether there is a quote-unquote EJ community. We absolutely agree and lift up the fact that the only folks who should really have the right to label their community are the people who live in that community. One of the things that we're excited about in the future, now that we have some support for EJScreen and we'll hopefully continue to have some support for EJScreen, is a future where hopefully the platform can actually evolve into a place where users can put their own data into the tool. They can put their own data about how they see their community. They could potentially put their own data in terms of the citizen science that they're pursuing on the ground right monitoring and sampling information we through our grant programs in the ej program here at epa we fund on an annual basis lots of citizen science water monitoring and air sampling and testing for lead testing for other things happening on the ground trying to bring citizen data into a government sponsored platform and tool is a trick be- beyond just the policy stuff there's all just the security i don't think we have to describe the bureaucratic hoops we have to jump through to do something like that but that is something that we've very clearly heard from the wejack it's something we've very clearly heard for many years from the users of our tool So it is something that as soon as we have the ability to do so, we'd be very excited to start to open up that opportunity for community leaders and organizations, not just interact with the tool, but to start to put their stuff into the tool.
2: Right. And Matt, you mentioned the tool is not, the purpose of it is not to identify EJ communities. And that's been very clear from EPA and guidance and just from you and your office. But should the communities and the industry and the public expect additional guidance from the agency on what constitutes an EJ community? Are there certain thresholds for the EJ indices, like 95%? Is there any guidance that gives us some sort of shape in terms of what an EJ community is?
0: There's a couple things to that. Inside of EPA, we typically advise folks that a good starting point is that if a block group is at or above the 80th percentile for any of the EJ indices, there's a good indication that there's probably some EJ issues on the ground and you need to do some closer research. You need to talk to your regional EJ coordinator and see if they have some relationships. You need to see if the EJ program has funded any grants or technical assistance for that community. You need to see if there are any relationships that we can tap of folks that actually live in that community but it's just an indication right and those other things that i just mentioned those are all equally as powerful maybe even more powerful indications as to how the community might see itself talking to our ej coordinators seeing if a grant has been given to those places there's a lot of different ways for us to start to understand how potentially A community views itself how potentially a community views the reality of the potential disproportionate impacts in terms of burden and vulnerability that exist in that community but you never really know you never ever really know until you get on the ground and hear it directly from the community and everything we do and everything we advise is to get programs at epa programs from state or tribal or local governments or folks in business and industry None of us are going to give you a definitive answer to these things. None of our tools are going to give you a definitive answer for these things. You have to meaningfully engage the community to find those answers.
2: It's very helpful. Thank you. So prior to my time here at Siddeley, I was an attorney at the Nuclear Reg Commission for three years and nine months. (laughs) And there we looked at the EJ Screen tool sometimes. I know my FERT colleagues did as well. I know that this tool is used by other agencies, independent and executive agencies. Ty, did your team confer with other agencies such as FERC or DOD on the application of EJScreen tool to their respective programs? Or is that something outside of EPA's scope?
3: We have literally talked to everyone under the sun about (laughs) EJScreen. I think I did a presentation for FERC maybe four or five years ago, but literally we've talked to all of these other federal agencies and helped them understand how they can use this data. I know there's a lot of other federal agencies like HUD, like FEMA, DOT, that uses EJ Screen to implement aspects of their programs. Even more than other federal governments, I think where EJ Screen gets really valuable is for some of the state governments, because state governments don't have the resources like federal governments do. Some of the big states like California obviously do. But we've always thought of EJ Screen as not just a tool for ourselves, but also for all of our regulatory partners. And you see a lot of use of it in that context as well. You see a lot of states using EJ Screen to implement their environmental programs or their environmental justice programs. And even down to the local level government will see use of EJ Screen. So we've always felt that EJ Screen is that tool for not just EPA, but for our governmental partners. In that way. One of the things I would really love to see is EJ Screen become more of a platform rather than just the tool itself. For some of those states that don't have the ability to build their own EJ screening tool, it would be really neat if they could just take EJ Screen, download aspects of it, build in their own data set, because a lot of times those states are gonna have better data than we have for the entire country. As Matt said before, our big limitation is we're looking for data sets that span the entire nation. And a lot of times the states have that data for pesticides, or they might have that data for drinking water, or they have that data for the placement of CAFOs. So they could actually get a lot better data than we can do for the entire nation. So that's kind of my hope with the tool longer term.
2: And Matt, would it then be conceivable that the EJScreen 2.0 tool could include state data, where states would be submitting data to the EPA for inclusion in the tool?
0: Going back to that idea of communities being able to put their information onto the tool, that's something that we really see as the, I don't want to say the longer term future as if it's decades away, but we're hopeful that in the next few years EJScreen will evolve from just being a tool, and there's all these other tools out in the universe, to the federal government EPA really providing a platform. And EJScreen can be the backbone of that platform, but for us to allow and host and support the creation of other folks' tools at different geographic scales, whether it's a state scale or a county or an individual city or an individual community, right? Anything you do to get down to a finer level of scale, moving from national to state, moving from state to county, moving from county to city, every time you move down in that geographic scale, a whole new world of data opens up, a whole new world of the level of surety you have in that data actually reflecting what's happening on the ground. You take a huge leap forward in that. So EJ screen is it's great, it's a national tool, it's nationally consistent, but it's a long way away from the ground. It's a national tool. So anything we can do to support, and I think EPA has, that's a really wonderful role for EPA to play from the federal level is not creating a tool that answers everyone's questions, but providing a platform and support and a wealth of experience, not just ours, but the experience of other states and other practitioners in working with one another, showcasing things for one another, developing best practices, and allowing folks to be able to access one another's tools and algorithms and calculations and cumulative impact methodologies to advance everyone's ability to look at the data we have at hand and understand how to really apply it in meaningful ways to advance equity and justice for making change happen on the ground.
2: Very helpful, thank you. And again, I wanna applaud you both on the tool. I, I looked at it yesterday and over the weekend and it's very different than the past tool and very user-friendly. So it's a great tool for the public and for industry to identify potential concerns, as you noted, with specific issues and probably permit issues. So my question for you, Matt, is how best and in what way should industry use EJ Screen? and information from EJ Screen as part of their project planning and pre-permitting analysis. In terms of community engagement, how do you think industry can best incorporate EJ Screen as they engage with the agency for permitting in EJ communities around their facilities?
0: I think the simplest answer is using it in the same way that we're using it in the government level, right? Not thinking that EJ Screen is giving you a definitive answer, but it's giving you a lot of information to help understand what potentially is happening out there on the ground to help you ask better questions, to help you meaningfully engage with that community. I used to work a lot and engage a lot with industry when I was running the EJ Advocacy back in Houston before I came to EPA. I have never though engaged as much with industry as I have over the last 12 months. There has been a huge groundswell of interest and openness. To really sit down and have the hard conversations about what does equity and justice look like in the private sector, and what does the private sector have to do to step up for that. And EJ Screen, ever since we launched EJ Screen, we've always said amongst the uses of the tool, one of the uses is to have a common starting point for a conversation, and that sounds really banal. It sounds kind of meaningless even, you know, a common starting point for a conversation. That is bar none the most powerful use of EJScreen is a common starting point for a conversation. And throughout all the engagement I've had with folks from the private sector over the last year, to really highlight the fact that if business and industry, if the private sector really wants to understand how to actually advance equity and justice from their perspective, from their place, EJScreen is a great tool to help them understand what is potentially happening on the ground It is a great tool for them to help understand what better questions to ask, really informed questions about the potential realities of equity and justice around their facilities, around their operations. But they have got to commit, not just to engaging, but to investing in the practice of environmental justice within their companies, the same way they invest in lawyers to do the lawyering, the same way they invest in engineers to do the engineering. They've got to invest in environmental justice professionals to pursue equity and justice. And they have got to commit to actually forming sustained relationships with the communities they are impacting and show up, not just as a good neighbor, buying football jerseys for the local high school, but showing up as a member of the community whose fate is bound up in the future prosperity of that community. And that means not just showing up when it's a matter of the emissions from their fence line or a monitor or a permit that's coming up for renewal, but showing up when that community needs a new bus stop put in showing up when that community needs access to better healthcare, showing up when that community needs access to better healthy foods or when they're having climate change issues, when there's flooding or when there's other sorts of effects from heat or wildfire or drought, really showing up as a member of the community. And EJ Screen is a wonderful way for business and industry to start to make that tangible inside the C-suite all the way down through the rest of that company. And we in the EJ program here at EPA, I wanna make sure folks understand Part of our job is to engage and support and help business and industry figure that out. We are not just here to engage with communities. Our philosophy in the EJ program at EPA is one of collaborative problem solving. It takes everyone, all levels of government, the private sector, academia, philanthropy, everyone has got to show up and sit down at the table that has been set by the community to understand and engage in helping that community design and implement a more prosperous future. And business and industry plays a role in that. And we have a responsibility in the EJ program at EPA again in engaging and supporting our private sector partners in figuring out how to do that.
2: It's very helpful. And we touched on cumulative impacts in the beginning of our podcast today. I think I had attended one of your EJ Screen hours maybe last December and we talked about the potential to include that in the tool. I know that's not in the current tool now in EJ Screen 2.0. Hi, do you expect to include that in future versions of the EJ Screen tool?
3: Well, Nicole, that's something we have literally been working on for years. But that cumulative impacts question is not an easy one. I think initially when we put out EJ Screen, we were a little bit hesitant to well, we obviously didn't want to rush to include a cumulative impact score, but we were also a little bit hesitant to include a cumulative impact score for a couple of reasons. The first reason is just, sometimes when you include just a single score, that's all people see, and they miss all of the great information that you can pull from EJ Screen. By digging into some of these things, you find out so much information, and if all you get is that single score, Well, that's the answer, and I don't need to see the rest of that information. (laughs) That was definitely one of the big hesitations. But the other thing with a cumulative impact score is that I think a cumulative impact score really depends on the question that you're asking. That cumulative impact score for a question around air pollution is going to be a different score than that cumulative impact score for something around pesticides. It is one of those things that we've always said that A cumulative impact score should be a little bit more fit for the purpose of that score. I don't think that we're going to ever have one score that answers all of the questions, but I think that we could probably do a better job of combining that information in a way that it's more meaningful to communities. That's not going to be the end-all be-all cumulative impact score, but I think we'll probably get there. We've been talking with some academics, some really top-of-the-line folks that have been thinking about environmental justice and cumulative scores for a long time. And they've been giving us some feedback about some ways that we could do it. Obviously, there are tools like California EnviroScreen that does create a cumulative impact score. They are able to do it though because they have one single purpose with that tool. They're allocating funding for their air program. It's a little easier if you have one single purpose that you're doing with a tool. And thus far, EJ Screen has just had such a wealth of different ways that people are using it. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say that we have one score.
2: Matt, same question for you.
0: Going back to something I think we mentioned earlier, a lot of people come to environmental justice or come to EJ Screen and they want an easy button answer for EJ. And there just isn't one. So one of the things that we're being very careful about, as Ty said, is I don't think there is a cumulative score for EJ. I think there's a lot of different cumulative scores for EJ. I think there's a lot of different ways we could roll up different things. The most important part of it is what question are you asking? The climate and economic justice screening tool has kind of a cumulative map of the United States. It's not a cumulative score, but it's it's kind of a cumulative map using a lot of if and statements. And that was to answer a very clear policy question of Justice40, right? We needed a map of disadvantaged communities. So the climate economic justice screening tool delivered that map. Same thing happened out in California with CalEnviroScreen. They had a tool that in the early days was more similar to EJ Screen in the terms of it was just a broad analytical tool showing a lot of different data sets scaled to the state of California. And then they had a legislative need to come up with a map of communities for funding purposes. And so they made a cumulative score to answer that policy question. EJ Screen's never been posed with a very clear policy mandate or question for which we'd have to roll up different things in the tool. And as Ty was saying, a cumulative score that would help our air quality program better understand air quality impacts on Egypt communities would look very different from a cumulative score that we could potentially develop for our water colleagues in terms of determining where to put water infrastructure dollars. Those are two very different ways of looking at it. And you can't just roll up everything to answer both those questions in an equally effective manner.
2: That is very true, and thank you for all that context around that potential score. And just to wrap up, again, thank you both for your time. This has been really helpful and very informative. We talked about this throughout today's episode, but just to wrap up, what are the future updates that you foresee at this point to EJ Screen, at least for the next couple of years during the current administration? What's your focus for new updates to the tool? Ty, I'll have you answer first.
3: I would say that our biggest thing that we're always trying to do with EJ Screen, our number one thing is finding more relevant data sets to EJ communities, finding some data sets at that national scale. Obviously, this update, we got in some really exciting updates where we got some new health data in there. Well, we're going to expand on that health data. We're going to put some better health data in there, find some more relevant health outcomes. Likewise, our climate change data, we're going to be expanding on that. Hopefully we'll get some better data sets on water. We've been talking a lot with our office of water about some new data sets that we could build into the tool that get to some of the water impacts that people are looking for. We've been talking to some folks within the agency about how we could develop some data sets on CAFOs or continuous animal feeding operations. So just trying to get to some of those really relevant data sets to EJ communities is the number one thing that we're always looking to do. But outside of that, I would say some of the things we've already touched on, those cumulative impact scores, we have definitely been thinking a lot about that. We've been thinking a lot about it for a long time, but then I think in this new climate, we've been thinking even more about it. Another big thing that we've been looking at recently is, is there a different way that we can combine some of that demographic data together to get at EJ in a different way? And we're not going to change the way that we're looking at it right now. That was the language from the executive order on environmental justice to look at low income and communities of color. So that is going to stay in the tool. But is there a different way that we could slice and dice some of that demographic information to get at some other areas that are in need? We've been toying with some ways inside the agency, and maybe that could get put into the tool in the longer term. And then another thing that we've been looking at, and hopefully we'll get it into the tool, is actually developing some threshold maps or a way that makes it a little bit easier to see all of those places that fall above a certain level. Right now, you have to click through for each of the 12 different EJ indexes to see how that one stands, how this one stands. But we could create a map that basically looks at where are any of those EJ indexes above the 80th percentile or above the 90th percentile? So I think those are some of the shorter term changes. Another couple of things that I was thinking about, right now we have data on Puerto Rico in the tool. We are trying to build in data on the rest of the territories. So we're looking at how it's gonna look. Some of that data is gonna be very different We have environmental data for most of the places, but it's not always the same environmental data. The demographic data that they are pulling from is a different demographic data set. So it's going to be hard. It's probably not going to be comparing apples to apples. Those places might just compare to themselves, but we feel it's really important to get that data into the tool if we can. So we're trying to get some of that into the tool.
2: Matt, anything you would like to add?
0: I just want to lift that up. I think that's a huge, when Ty was talking about maybe looking at some of the different demographics or some of the areas where we really want to support development of new environmental data, we have a huge focus on rural parts of the contiguous 48 and then everywhere else is not part of the 48, right? All of the United States should be treated equally. We should have just as rich a data for the Virgin Islands and for Guam and for all the Pacific Islands as we do for Delaware, right? It it should be the same, it's not. So that's one of the areas where we're continually always looking to really prioritize. What data can we use? How can we use that data? How can we slice and dice that data for it to really be as rich, as meaningful, as insightful, regardless of where you're looking across the United States? The way that we get the data, the way the data just exists, A lot of times has its own limitations within it because of the way that whoever collects the data collects the data but we're always looking at ways to overcome that and just in general as well i mean a lot of what is happening in the overall tool ej screening space right now is hugely exciting and it's something that we of course have been a part of ever since before ej screen was released our constant engagement with other federal agencies, as Ty was saying earlier, with states, with local governments, with communities on the ground, with different sorts of users, folks way outside of the environmental space, right? Local planners, health departments, academic folks, like you asked earlier, business and industry, all of that has gone to inform what we do with EJ Screen every single year. Every enhancement, every change, every slight tweak we make behind the scenes on the tool, it is all based upon what our users give us in feedback, what they ask us for, what they're saying their needs are. We're gonna to continue to do that going into the future. Everything we do in EJ Screen is gonna be continue to be based upon what our users need us to do. And that's kind of scary and thrilling at the same time because the interest in and demand for this sort of information is going off like a rocket. There's such an increase in attention and demand and want and need for this. So we're excited for it. It's a little bit scary about the level of things people are going to ask us for pretty soon over the next couple of years, but we're going to do everything we can to meet the demand and continue to make EJ Screen as well as anyone and everyone else's tool as good as they can possibly be.
2: That's awesome. I just want to thank you both again for your time and congratulations on this upgrade to the tool. It's tremendously more user-friendly and I look forward to using it in my matter. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
0: Thanks, Nicole. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at
2: www.eli.org.